welcome everybody to the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival podcast. I'm your host, Nick Irvin. Join me as we dig a bit deeper into the films and events of this year's 2020 festival. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode number two of the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival podcast. Today we have a great conversation with Eric Peterson about his film Paradise. This explores one community's struggle with a proposed mine near Yellowstone National Park. If you haven't seen this film yet and want to before we talk about it, you might be able to find it on Vimeo after it makes its rounds in the film festival scene. Thanks again for joining us and don't forget to download all the other Flagstaff Mountain Film Fest episodes. Now, let's start the show. I've got a really good signal here. Um, so looking at your, your past films, and I've looked at your, your Instagram account, which is absolutely gorgeous with the still photography, um, it, it seems like there's a lot of the photography essentials and composition that goes into your, into your films as well. So which was your first love, if there was one, photography or videography? Yeah, I, I was definitely a still photographer uh, from the beginning, that's my that's been my career. I started out as a newspaper photographer and uh, magazine photography, and um, so I've done that for the past twenty years, and just picked up the filmmaking part of it in the last six years. Um, so I have no doubt that when people watch <laughs> the, the films that I make, there's definitely a element of still photography and composition involved because that's my background, that's my education, and yeah, fifteen years of of professional work has been in the still world so the the motion part is all new to me and but it's been a really fun uh learning point in my career nice yeah yeah i could definitely see it right off the bat um the some of the shots like whether it's a, a little bit of wood in front of the right side of a shot or using the flare of the sun and and all that um i just i had a feeling that it was you were pretty photography based but you're doing a great job with with the film um it comes through as well and and the motions so i guess i can talk about that right now or we can talk about that there were a lot of varied shots you seem to use pretty much everything from slow motion pans to um you know um what is it like like the old articles and then a couple of um like cozy shots in a house to like these crazy skiing shots so was it kind of a purpose to give these varied shots or is that just because you love all the different types of, of of filming opportunities i think it was probably by design of the story threads that i was going for in this so one of those threads was the political journey of this um campaign from getting started at the grassroots level of these local businesses banding together to, to fight this mine um, all the way up to an act of Congress being passed. So that was one of the threads I wanted to follow was that political political spectrum. Uh, another thread that I wanted to follow was like we talked about the outdoor recreation in this area. So showing the skiing and fishing and hunting was was a way of highlighting that outdoor recreation. And then the main character, um, hike to the top of one of the most prominent peaks in Paradise Valley and that was kind of the the physical and metaphorical journey to the top of the mountain that was the third thread in this so I think just by nature of having those threads in my mind when I was telling the story meant there was a lot of different um, visual elements to the story and I, to me like getting inside the main characters 
life and home and, and mind even is important to get the re- the viewer to buy into that character and buy into the story. So that was, I always like to show those intimate in-home moments because I feel like that's the best way to get the viewer bought into the character. Yeah, that was great. The The making of, uh, it looked like pancakes. Was that an early morning or like a breakfast for dinner kind of thing? Because no, it looked dark outside. It was, it was an early morning. He's, Ooh, yeah, man. yeah, he's a, he's a, you know, old school mountain man. So he, uh, he makes flapjacks in the dark at most mornings. <laughs> so yeah, it was a very early morning. Was that the morning before the hike started? No, it was just, a. yeah, we sort of set that shoot up for a, a breakfast scene basically. And I, I got there early. So I try to, when I'm shooting this stuff, I try to make it as true to life as possible. So I'm not setting up a, you know, too much, like I, I sort of, you know, I consider these documentaries, so I'm trying to keep things as true to life as possible. And that stems from my journalism background, um, mm. doing things as honest yeah. as possible. It felt super honest. Um, some of the shots of the, the photographs were nice too, um, that they had there. But when you were pulled back, I think from like a living room or something, and he walks across with the plate. Um, yeah, no, it was very honest and very, yeah, it got us into um, uh, Brian's, um, yeah, his into his home and therefore, you know, made him a, a real person. I think so. Yeah. I just, I like that little pancake, uh, scene. That was good. Yeah. yeah. That's the one moment in, uh, in all the screenings we've had, that's kind of the one moment of laughter that we get in this film, which is always, you know, when you're putting these things together, you never know exactly what's going to resonate with people or what, where the funny moments are, the sad moments. So it's always fun to, to watch an audience and see, and that's definitely one of the moment, the lighter moments. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did have a question, a technical question about filming with him, with, with Brian, um, is his giant beard. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get the audio with that in some of the scenes? Was it all basically kind of boom mic stuff or did you ever mic him actually up? No, I mic'd him for pretty much everything. Uh, really? Yeah, because my crew is so small. I'm such a, you know primarily a single person operation and then I bring a friend or two along for a second camera or whatever the case is I rarely have a budget that includes a a boom mic operator so yeah <laughs> it was definitely a challenge and and his voice is so low and gravelly that um that was definitely one of the concerns was losing his voice amongst all the other noise so yeah, that was a concern, and, and and miking him up through that giant beard was always a challenge. Um, yeah, but definitely a, a likable part of his character. Yeah, yeah. I just from a you know I've miked people up with lapel mics and stuff, and I was just like, how in the world? Where do you put it exactly? <laughs> just, <laughs> and how's it not it, scratching? Right, just hook it anywhere under that beard, and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A bear of a guy, a big grumbly guy. It was yeah. cool. Um, when you were say out on, out on set, uh, or set out, out in the, in the outdoor kind of shots, um, I feel like you're very at home there. A lot of your photography is, is hunting, fishing, um, snowy mountain scenes. Obviously that's, I mean, that's where you live. You're up there in Montana. So, um, when you're out there filming, were there any situations that were unique to, to this area or this story that you had to incorporate something different from your other films? I don't know if it was different from other films. I mean, it's always the challenge of, of 
frankly, keeping up with all the camera gear. Uh, the hike up the up to the top of Immigrant Peak was probably one of the bigger challenges, just because on that shoot we did have a five-person crew, so hmm. you know, lining all that up for a single day, um, probably six-hour hike, um, took some logistics, and then just hauling that amount of gear to a place like that. It was whatever ten ten plus thousand feet elevation at the top so and then the the ski sequence too is we went up in the winter time skinned up to the top of immigrant peak as well and you know that involves some ice axes and and backcountry ski gear and all that kind of stuff because it's pretty technical once you get way up on top so um, mm. yeah i mean just going into those places period is always a challenge and then you add the logistics of audio and film and gear and and keeping up and all that stuff um makes it a challenge but that's that's part of the fun i think that's why a lot of us do this is to is for those outdoor physical challenges absolutely yeah yeah the the backcountry skinning i'm used to but not using ice axes and especially not carrying you know dozens of pounds of of weight right yeah that was a, that was a, i'm not an ice climber that was i've done it a few times but that was one of the few times i'd use an ice axe and i felt like Maybe this was not the best place to be learning how to use it, <laughs> but, but it worked. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And then the use of, uh, of drones uh, for some of these really beautiful uh, panning shots and, and some of the uplifts and everything like that. Um, did you or have you ever had uh, any issues with um, either regulations or, or logistics of getting those shots? Are, are you, I guess the first question is, are you the drone operator in those shots? No, I had a, a partner on this project who was the drone operator, so that was nice to have and um, took some of the pressure off me. I th- yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're a fantastic tool, especially in a landscape like we live in here to showcase the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. That's a that's a great way to do it. Um, and I did use a helicopter for some of the stuff as well, but that's oh. uh, that's that seems more limiting in some ways because you have to pinpoint the perfect weather window and, you know, really narrow in what shots you're going for with that versus I could go out really any day and shoot some B-roll drone footage um, since it is close to home. So that was, that was nice to have too. Do you have a connection to a, to a helicopter? There? Uh, no, there's a guy, there's a guy who's a um, commercial pilot in Bozeman and flies a lot for film crews and, so, um, I just felt like this story, I had never used a helicopter before, but I really wanted to try it and see what the, the footage would look like from that. Obviously it was super cool to be up there and, and getting some aerial footage that way. So, yeah, yeah. That'd be a blast. Yeah. And then the limitations of, obviously you can't fly drones in Yellowstone national park. So there was some of that as well, trying to get some footage of some aerial footage of that area without breaking any laws. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, um, kind of on my mind. I'd, I'd like to start getting a little more drone or not a little bit more, actually start to do some drone stuff. But with a small town here, we've got our airport and you can't do it five miles oh, right. within the airport, but yet all of downtown is five miles from the airport. So, um, so you're limited. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of talking about the drone shot too, I was wondering, uh, I'd love to talk about the hunting scene mm-hmm. uh, or the, or that day. What, what kind of did that kind of fall into your lap or did you schedule that with that person? How'd that day go? No, I was looking for three authentic characters who had already been bought into this issue. So in the beginning, when this mine was first proposed, 
a group, a small group of business owners got together and said, we need to figure out what we can do to help stop this. And ultimately what they decided was create a business coalition, because this isn't about being against mines, it's about securing and protecting the jobs and the industries that we have here in Southwest Montana in outdoor recreation. So that's how they did it. They rallied what ultimately ended up being over 400 businesses that joined this coalition against the mine. My goal, one of my goals with the film was to use characters who are authentically involved in the issue doing outdoor recreational pursuits that they enjoy normally, not just for the film. So um, the backcountry skier, he's a, he's a really avid backcountry skier in this area, owns an outdoor shop. Um, the woman who owns a brewery in town here is a avid fly fisherman and then fly fisherwoman. And then um, Jeff the hunter is super into that and uh, was one of the businesses that signed on early. So I, I sort of wavered back and forth. I wasn't 100% on the hunting thing because I know that can be a contentious issue, especially in the outdoor adventure film industry. Um, hunting is sort of a fringe pursuit, less so now than ever probably, but still. Um, so I was kind of toying with the idea of a, you know, a, horse, a horseman or an outfitter, that sort of thing for that Western um, element, but ultimately I felt like there's a lot of hunting and a lot of industry around hunting in Paradise Valley, and that was that was seemed to me a more authentic fit. So he was he was one of the characters from the start. Um, we spent probably six days out hunting before he was actually able to get a deer. Not that I necessarily needed him to be successful hunting; it was more about showing the pursuit. But um, but it ended up working out that way. Yeah. Okay. So you were out there six days with him. So I, I guess I kind of thought I was like, wow, he went out there one day and that guy must, you know, know what he's doing and got the, got the shot. That's a lot of commitment on, on your side to be out there doing that. Was there a point where you were ready to call it, um, at at any point during that hunt? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because we spent a few days in the mountains looking for elk and then ultimately we ended up deer hunting along the Yellowstone river um, which is what he ended up getting was a white-tailed deer. Yeah, there were there was there was certainly a point where I was like, I'm not sure I really need him to shoot something on film in order to make this a successful sequence. Um, it ended up being the last day of the season that we kind of oh. said, let's give it one more shot. This is the last day we have. Let's let's go out one more time and try it. And that's when it, he ended up getting one. So it worked out. But I wouldn't have. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't in my mind that I had to have a successful harvest in order to make that sequence work. Yeah, that's something I think that films do um, is is kind of trick the audience into thinking that there's a lot of smoothness that happens and you know you get these shots really easy and quick and move on to the next one. But there's so much commitment and so many hours and hours. I mean, this film was was it between thirty and or around thirty minutes. Twenty twenty minutes, yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. And you know, how many hours upon hours upon hours of footage you're getting? I mean, you just talked about one scene that was maybe four or five shots that ended up being six days worth of, of thing. That's, I think that's important to point out to the audience that, you know, you're out there trudging in the snow for these beautiful shots for, for multiple days for just that little, little bit of the storytelling, which is very important. Like you said, the authenticity of that area of the hunting uh, part of it is, is really important. 
And, and I'm glad you didn't struggle enough with the hunting part to not put it in because it did tell the story of, of Paradise Valley of that area. Well, it's good to hear that because that was one of the characters I kept going back to friends and editors and saying, do we need this character? Is this, does it just detract from the overall or does it add? It, it was hard for me to, by that point, it was hard for me to parse out whether it was an addition or a subtraction to have him. So it's good to hear that. Hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think his, of any of the, of the local businesses that were represented to me, impacted me as like the guy who's really, really authentically using the land. And it's important to him, um, that, that the land is successful because he's been doing this and, and yeah, I don't know, for some reason more than even the brewery or, or any of that kind of stuff like that, that kind of connection to the land was great. Good. That's good to hear. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just keep going back to the scenes though, too. I forget her name, the woman who owned the brewery, uh, those shots of her fly fishing on that boat. Um, just keep coming back in my mind. Um, those were great, great shots. Nice. Thanks. That's another one where we probably tried four different times and either weather was prohibitive, got cloudy, it was windy, something happened where it just didn't quite work out. So that was another one we kept going back to. And she, and Lynette is her name. And she's, she was a new mother at that time. So trying to schedule a fly fishing shoot with a you know with a new mother who had at that time probably a three or four month old was one of the bigger challenges um you know and it's yeah like you say it's it's those little things that you never realize watching the film and that nobody's ever going to know but that's just part of the process Mm -hmm. yeah and and not being too much of a disturbance to them like you said she was a new mother and you're like Hey, I know we just shot yesterday, but uh, can we do that again? <laughs> Absolutely. And at first, we were having her husband row the boat, row their boat, and it became really quickly obvious that that was not going to work in the film because that meant finding a babysitter and that meant navigating their <laughs> schedule, both of their schedules. And so, eventually, I just I found a a buddy of mine who builds custom drift boats down in the valley, um, who had some time to take his boat out on the water and he was kind of the guide for her. So that was, uh, that was helpful and, and made logistically made that a little bit easier on everybody. Nice. Oh, I love that. I love getting into these stories of, you know, now people can go back and watch the film again and they're going to see them putting the baby in the little stroller or the little carrier and, and know, Oh, they, they didn't want to get, you know, the babysitter and all that. Yeah. 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 This is exactly what I love talking about. These little, little filmmaking stories. Yeah, that's great. For sure. So I'm always interested in, in somewhat kind of the narration and the talks and how much of it is scripted and how much of it is not. Can you maybe run us through if there's both some unscripted and scripted kind of talks, um, not necessarily the interview parts, um, but let's say when Brian is talking, are you just kind of hit and record and then spending, you know, as I know, plenty of hours uh, finding that stuff or do you really go in scripted? I've never gone in scripted and I nice. would love to learn more about that process for, uh, you know, people, cause I know that that is a way a lot of people do this and probably a more efficient way. Um, and I, I probably again, credit this to my journalism background or blame it on my journalism background that I try to go in unscripted and just do a standard interview for sure. In the beginning, you know, the first probably three or four interviews I did with Brian, it was just, miking him up, setting up cameras and lights and asking him questions and then follow up questions and follow up questions. Then toward the end of the film, once 
things were a little more narrowed down and, and we knew elements that might be missing from the story, then we would do a follow-up interview with, with very focused questions. And sometimes even to the point of having like, this is what we need him to say. So if I can't get him to say that through my questioning, then at the very end, I'll resort to saying, Brian, would you, would you please just say this in your own word, in your own way? Um, so that's, uh, that's my process. And I'm sure that's very different from most, but that's just the way I'm most comfortable with. Yeah, no, I think that's real interesting. That's, that's great to, to get that, throw that broad net over it at first and then start focusing in. And if you've got the time to do that with that person, that sounds like a perfect strategy to me. Yeah. Cause it's, it's gotta be so hard to, to make something scripted, not sound canned. Um, but yet you're putting a lot of work on yourself by just having them free flow and then going back and, and picking out the parts that you need. So much work. Yeah. So yeah. much work. I use Trent. It's one of the, uh, transcription softwares that you can find online. And I just have that program transcribe all my interviews from, from video and I'll go, th I'll go through, you know, I'll, I'll transcribe it and then print it and I'll go through with a highlighter and like very old school manually pick out the ideas, the quotes, the themes that I feel are most relevant to the story. And then I kind of hone in on those. And if I need to flesh those out more, or tease those out more, that'll be in a follow-up interview. But then, you know, I kind of start building those building blocks that way through the transcription process. Nice. And does that give you kind of timestamps as well on where the, yeah. where that is? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. timestamp. So you can easily find it. And, so that's a pretty that's a pretty good system in a admittedly flawed system overall that I have. <laughs> I don't know if it's flawed, but it's the one that I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything that came out on the screen definitely didn't didn't seem flawed at all. That was, <laughs> Thanks. That's good. Yeah, that's a good little strategy. I like that. I might have to to use that in some of my stuff. Trent. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the film, and this is going to be put out like after or during and after the film fest, so it's not really spoiler alert sure. necessarily but just in case here comes a spoiler alert um at the end of the film we see oh, this is a great couple of scenes too we're in i'm, I'm guessing in brian's house mm -hmm. again it's daytime so it's a little bit different lighting right. but um a family is gathered probably friends are gathered it's a full house around there's a tv on someone has a, a laptop with the um for lack of a better term, like a congressional hearing or a bill passing or something like that. I don't know right. what you technically call that. Um, yeah. yeah, congressional hearing. Okay. And so, and then all of a sudden they, they say that this, uh, this bill to protect the lands from this, from this mining is passed and, and everyone in the house starts smiling. There's, there's even a couple of tears that you got um, being shed. And there was a scene where these two women kind of parted ways and there's Brian and his wife and he sneaks a kiss in the in the kitchen i you must have been so happy to catch that little <laughs> shot right there because it was it was definitely an honest very honest moment um on the on the screen so what was what was that like being a part of that had you already grown into that kind of family and community and felt super comfortable um i can imagine it could go both ways yeah i think at that point i had been following the story for two years so oh um, wow. yeah yeah, the first interview I did with Brian was 2017, um, and then you know this this issue took about four years overall from from the from the time I guess 
almost five years from the time they first heard about this proposed gold mine to the to the signing of the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act was um, about five years, and I started it. Yeah, like I said, in 2017. So certainly by that time, by the time the bill was passed, I had spent a lot of time with all these folks that were involved with the issue. Um, so it was comfortable. Everybody knew well who I was and what I was up to, and 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 the benefit of that is I can kind of be a wallflower and. Um, get things unfolding as naturally as possible, which was the case with that one. I didn't, I didn't even know that was happening until um, the two gals who hugged kind of parted ways, and there was Brian kissing his wife, which yeah, it was, ended up being pretty, pretty neat moment for sure. Yeah, I love that. I love that uh, that feel. I didn't know that you were you were filming for that long um, mm-hmm. on this issue, and that's also a, a a cool thing about you're being part of that community already. Um, you know, being told by someone else, another filmmaker who might just be interested in this story, uh, wouldn't be able to, to dig in like, like you were able to, because it is your community. It's, it's your home. Yeah, that's a huge benefit. And one of the, one of the reasons I like doing these stories closer to home is one, I know, I know the players better and have a better chance to get to know them. But also, it's just I have access to the story so much more. You know, whether it's whether it's getting B-roll on a on a Wednesday morning because it's close to home and it's beautiful light, or uh, you know, doing a fourth follow-up interview with a character because I can. You know, I'm sure I've done some international work, and I know the challenges. I've done some international work on the still photography side. <clears throat> excuse me, and I can't imagine how challenging it would be to shoot a film somewhere like that where you have a very small window of time to get everything you need and there is no follow-up interviews necessarily or there is no follow-up b-roll um that's definitely an advantage i have working locally yeah yeah that's awesome and so the story uh, at least for this film kind of ends uh, well, it doesn't end there. It ends with that bill being passed but then you bring up a private lands claim um, that was, um, I don't know details. It was just kind of a little blip, almost like a to be continued kind of, kind of thing. Is there any news on, on that one about a, I I think I'm saying that right. It was like a private lands gold mine claim right in the same area. Yeah, you're right. There were, there were really two proposed gold mines. Um, one was the immigrant mine, which is what the, the story focuses on. Brian lives in immigrant gulch and, and the, Lucky Minerals, which is a Canadian-based company, proposed a gold mine up there. The second is called Crevice Mine. Um, it's all private land, and the owner of that, of those leases, filed for a small miner's exemption, basically, which allows him to to mine on five acres or less at a time, hmm. and. And the restrictions are a lot less. So, like the bonding is minuscule. I think it's a ten thousand dollar bonding issue when it's a small small miners exemption like that. So, it's this is getting a little into the weeds. But um, the difference is the crevice mine, which is right on the border, literally right on the border of Yellowstone National Park, is all on private land. So, the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act, which was passed in Congress and signed by President Trump doesn't affect private land. It removed thirty plus thousand acres of public land from being able to be mined in the Yellowstone area. But obviously private land is a much different story. 
So the threat continues. The film ends with kind of this victory of getting the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act passed, but then this kind of looming threat of, you know, just because we won this fight doesn't mean the battle's over. Ultimately, these these small miners, small mines keep popping up across the West. And this issue, what I wanted to get across, what I hope some of the takeaway was that this fight isn't over. This issue continues to come up all over the West. And really there's no, there won't be true resolution until we, until we address the 1872 hard rock mining law, which is kind of the bedrock policy of the mining world, which yes. says the greatest use of our public lands is mining. So that's, that's what we're still operating under. Um, there's some talks of that being addressed in Congress. There's some movement on that. And that's kind of my hope for the next steps is that we can, we can address that archaic log that we're still operating under. Yeah. Yeah. I think this story just adds another, another brick to the, to the foundation that these ecological systems provide economy, like we said in the beginning, that isn't boom and bust. And so maybe it's, maybe you'll start to rethink what the best use is, like you said, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, so thank you for telling that story. Because um, here in, in Flagstaff, we're kind of the gateway to Grand Canyon, and we've been dealing with uh, uranium mining in the area, and there was just a bill put out to um, to Congress about, <clears throat> um, basically there's a moratorium up until I think it's 2032, but just to permanently ban uh, about a million acres um, from new uranium mines. Um, and there's grandfathering in that's already occurred. But um, yeah, so it's it's an issue that maybe if we can start to connect all these stories in different areas of the West, we can create that bigger story of the, of the ecological economy. Um, because like Yellowstone, Grand Canyon's right there with, with a huge, I mean, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. we're both... Yeah, we're both worldwide destinations that bring in millions and millions and millions of people uh, every year. Absolutely. And I think it's it's foolish that we have to continue fighting these fights over and over and over again in small communities around the West. And it's the same battles that keep popping up everywhere. And I hope that we can get to a place where um, mining isn't the, the, the best use of our public lands. Yep, same. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, a huge thank you for, for again, telling this story, uh, a story of not only a community, but your community. That's really cool. And beautiful, beautifully shot film. Great story. Uh, ends with a call to action, which I love. Um, and so is there anything else you'd want to discuss about the making of this, of this film? This is your, isn't, this is your third film to go to, to Banff. Is That's that it. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very fortunate to uh, be able to do this. I really love the process, love telling these stories, love sharing uh, inspirational, hopefully inspirational stories with, with uh, large audiences. So it's been really fun. Um, I appreciate the time to sit down and chat about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it is inspirational. And, and you you have to have that passion and you have to really enjoy it because it is a lot of hard work. And yeah, I want to reiterate that again. I mean, six days out on a hunt, multiple days, you know, all this, all this goes into it. If you're not passionate and, and excited about it, you're not going to, you're not going to do something like this. So that shines through for you. So thank you. 
Awesome. Anything you want to uh, to plug? Any future projects? Anything out there special to you that you want people to check out? I, I know right off the bat, sorry, I asked a question then just immediately. Anyone listening to this needs to go to his Instagram page, uh, Eric Peterson, and see these gorgeous, gorgeous shots. Um, and you've got this technique that makes everything, really the lighting and the crispness of all your shots is is beautiful. Um, so you. yeah, go to, go to his Instagram page and follow that for, for some gorgeous shots. Um, Thank anything you. else you want to, you want to plug here at the end? Uh, no, I appreciate that though. I live in a, in a gorgeous place. So it makes, makes it easy. Um, my very first film was called the hard way about an 89 year old ultra runner. Uh, another really cool film that's on Vimeo. So it's worth checking that out. It's, that's one of my favorite stories just because of the character and, and what an inspiration he was, but no, otherwise I just appreciate the time and, uh, fun to chat with you about it yeah same all right well thanks eric uh, enjoy your the rest of your time out there in beautiful montana and um thanks again for being a part of this thank you all right Bye-bye. later all right all right well thank you guys so much for listening in and digging a bit deeper into the film with us For more information, simply go to the show notes for a couple of links on the filmmakers and the films. If you enjoyed this, please take about 30 seconds to subscribe and rate the podcast so that we know y'all are digging it. I'm Nick Irvin, you're you, and this has been the 2020 Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival podcast. Cheers and see you next episode.